This is Rachel Lynn, and you are listening to Upstage Left. In this episode, I speak with Wendy Vanden Heuvel, who you may have seen recently in The Convent by Jessica Dickey as the Mother Abbess. She is also the founder of Peace by Peace Productions and a member of Rising Phoenix Rep. And she's a teacher, which is how I met her. She was my acting teacher at the Experimental Theater Wing at NYU, where she was also a student uh, back in the 70s. She teaches physical acting and sometimes a class called Acrobatics of the Heart. And in this episode, we speak about the breath and the body and the spine, which are things that I've been thinking about a lot lately. So I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Wendy Vanden Heuvel. Thanks so much for coming in today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you were just in The Convent by Jessica Dickey. Yes. How did that go? Um, how did that go? Wow, that's such a... Wow, I could say so many things. <laughs> um, it The Convent is part of a commission that um, my company, Piece by Piece Production... Well, actually, it's not Piece by Piece. It's Weather Vane. Mm-hmm. Um Weathervane and Rising Phoenix and Rattlestick put on Rattlestick mm-hmm. Playwrights Theater. It's part of a greater commission that Weathervane and Rising Phoenix Rep started about four, probably like six, seven years ago, where we commission female playwrights and um, develop their plays. And but it's from a promise of production. Hmm. So it's kind of in this vein of finding a new development model of going like, we believe in you as an artist. We actually want to be involved in the development of your play and you're going to get this produced. So rather than having the playwright, which is kind of a more normal model right now, which is like go through reading, reading, reading with all these voices going into it and rewrites, which I think is very valuable too. Um, a lot of playwrights don't get production, so they mm-hmm. get readings. And so we felt like this was a way of like in saying to a playwright, like, we believe in you as artist and we want to stand behind that. And also we want to develop this play on its feet. Mm-hmm. We're not just going to develop it in readings. We're going to develop it in body, in action, um, through we do one development process, uh, workshop, and then we go into rehearsal. So they have time to rework the play. But in that rehearsal, the director, Daniel Talbot, and the writer like go in and the cast as well. It's a collaborative effort. But we literally dramaturg that play on our feet, mm-hmm. um, which I think is unusual. Um, most plays are done and then you go into rehearsals and production. And there's, you know, like everything, there's strengths and weaknesses involved in all of that. But it was great. It was a great experience, Convent. And um, I have to say, Jesse Dickey was like a brave playwright. Um, I think everybody was really brave. She gave this example of um, the process. This was the closest to my mind that describes the whole process, which was that fire ants in a flood... Um, band together and create a raft in order to survive for 30 days. So that's basically what we did. We all got in that room and went, okay, we're in. 
and let's hold each other tight and let's not let go. And we're going to see this thing through. I mean, and she was so brave. I mean, she was doing major rewrites, not major, major, but, you know, substantial rewrites in previews, like in our dressing room, you know, saying, I am going to switch these three scenes around and find a way to bring them together and like went off writing, you know. So in some ways, were um, those roles like tailor-made for each actor? No, actually. Like my role, actually, we offered to another actress um, at one point. There was some, at one point I was going to play another role in the, and um, we felt that this actress was like the best actress for the role, and then she was working. And so then both Daniel and Jesse and I felt like, you know, then let me do it. But we auditioned that role we actually asked this other actress to take it. There was a whole process of finding out who could play that role, and then I stepped into it at the end. So not tailor-made, right? But she is writing for um, specific, a theater company, which is different than I'm writing a play that I have an idea about. She's specifically writing for the actors involved, yes. Like Sam Soul was mm-hmm. always in that. A couple other actors were in it, but they dropped out because of other conflicts. Mm. Um, it, you know, I was going to be in it, but it wasn't sure what role I was going to take. So, but it's a commission based on theater companies coming together to work, and also it's Rising Phoenix is a an actors theater company too. So. She's writing for a specific group of actors, yes. Are you a founding member of of Rising Phoenix? I'm not a founding member. Addie Johnson Talbot Mm -hmm. and Daniel Talbot are founding members. And and Sam Soule, I think, is on the beginning. Like, I think there were five people at the beginning. And now, and then there are a bunch of actors, I would say like 20 actors who are members of that company. And it's a great company because it's like you, it's not that we always work together. Mm-hmm. We understand that we're also in this business and we move around and we have other projects that we're passionate about, but we like to come together and work together. That's really cool. It's great. <laughs> um, how did you end up in the theater? How did you start acting? How did I end up in the theater? I started acting at when I was like ten in camp. No, I don't know. Um, I, I I think it was really like the only thing that I liked. Really, like it was the only. Th- I wasn't good in school. I I wasn't a good student. Um, I was always drawn to it. I come from a very dramatic family. Um, there's a lot. I was all. I grew up with a lot of drama in my house. Um, so I think I was drawn to that in mm-hmm. the theater. And then I grew up, you know, w- watching a lot of theater too. And it was always something that I was really drawn to. And, um, and I started acting in high school and just kept going and came to NYU, Circle in the Square and Experimental Theater Wing and just dove in after that. I was really clear. It was like, I like this. It was fun, you know. And I think that that was how it started. And I think I like the community aspect of it a lot. Like it drives me crazy too that, in, you know, like I envy writers and painters that they can work alone. Mm. And I feel like I really am a collaborative artist. Like to work I need people. Mm. You know, you can't work on your own. 
Did you grow up in New York? Mm-hmm. You did? Mm-hmm. Where did you go to high school? I went to a school in、uh, Riverdale called Riverdale Country Day School. Oh, yeah, sure. And、uh, I, went, I, went to, I grew up in, my whole life in New York. I went to a bilingual French school till in elementary school. Is that Eunice? No, I went to a school that no longer exists. It was called Fleming. Oh. Yeah. Wow, lifelong New Yorker. Yeah. Were you in, you were in one of the early classes at ETW, is that right? Or? I was in one of the early classes. So Ron Argelander still ran that studio, and he's the one who founded that studio. So I was in the early classes with like Mary Overly, Jane Oden, Wendell Beaver, Steve Wong. Um, Ron Argelander, who else was there? Rena Yerushalmi was Israeli director.、Mm-hmm. Anne Bogart was teaching then.、Um, it was a really vital, interesting place. And, and we, were, you know, we were in productions directed by Anne. So it was really like, exciting in a way, you know? And, and it was great. And I, I always kind of have been on the cusp of like, traditional theater. And experimental theater. So, you know, I went to Circle in the Square for two years with Nikos Sakharopoulos and got kind of very traditional, really great base of training, reading tons of plays, like so many plays, and then、um, transferred to ETW and worked with Joe Chaikin and all those great teachers. They had great, and,、um, Eugenio Barba came in, gave a workshop. Grotowski, that's when Grotowski came in, and he gave talks at NYU. And then he auditioned a whole group of us at NYU to go and work with him in the summer. And I went and worked with him for the summer. And then I went and worked with him for nine months after that in Irvine, California. So that was after NYU. Wow.、Um, and that was really amazing work. And that work stays with me, like, I think about that work daily. Like, there's not a day that goes by that that work doesn't come into my life, consciousness, something. I feel like I know a bit about the work, but I would feel like maybe I don't know it in depth enough. Is, this, is it like cat and then the plastiques and all of that stuff? Or is it more, is, are there things that just come into your mind?、Um, So at that point in Irvine, he had, that was the cat and the plastiques, and all of those exercises were done when he had his theater company in Poland.、Uh-huh. So、um, that was with the work with Richard Shizlak and when he was still doing theater. Then he left that and he started a whole other phase called paratheatrical work, which was really these kind of wild exercises. Then he left that, and I think he went to the Theater of Sources. Which was a very kind of developmental phase in his growth. And then he went to objective drama at Irvine. And I think theater of sources and objective drama came together at that point, like all the research he had done and all of that.、Um, so we were doing, I would say we were doing one part creative work and one part exercises that he had developed at that point that were about raising. Presence, awareness, still really super physical. He had us working with two Haitian teachers doing the Yon Valu, which involves a spine still, which goes back to the cat, which is all spine.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, his interest in that was 
about the spine being the center and the source of raising kundalini energy. Mm. And um, we would spend hours working this kind of these Haitian songs. Um, he also had us working a lot with songs. And now the work that's in Italy at the work center is kind of the... Uh, Objective drama was the beginning of the work that now is in Italy going on with Thomas Richards and Mario um, Biagini, I think his name is. But um, that work, and we did do some performance, but he was the performance oriented work was about um, going back into our roots. We were a really multicultural room. We had Balinese, Korean, Japanese, Chinese. Um, South American, Mexican, I don't think there were, I mean, except for Thomas maybe, but I'm not sure that there were any African Americans in that group now that I think about it. But there were a bunch of Irvine students who were taking it as a course. But the work was about taking a song from your culture and finding an action within that song, which Mm -hmm. to me at the age of 20 was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, literally, I was like, I have no roots. I have no, like, I am come from uh, Polish Jews and Dutch Protestant Catholics, right? But my Jewish side was completely eliminated because I come from anti-Semitic Jews. They were Lithuanian Jews. And there's a long story about why they were anti-Semitic. Um, but he had me then... I told him that after three months of torture, right? Because I was bringing in Christmas carols and I was like, so lost. You're bringing Christmas carols. Oh my God, it was just a disaster. It was like I had no connection to it. I had no... And then you're seeing these rich cultures, the Balinese, the Korean music, like the connection to the culture. So he gave me a poem at one point and said, this is a poem about the Shekhinah, which is the female spirit in Judaism. It's the wanderer. And he said, find the song to that. He gave me a passage from Jung. And he said that the it was a passage about how you can actually make connections to your roots through your dreams, through the collective unconscious. And so I went into a room and started working with the words of the poem and literally grabbing onto any Jewish strain of song I could hold onto. But actually that work led me really deeply into a part of myself that I hadn't accessed before that had a deep energetic for me that was identifiable as Jewish. Hmm. And my great-great-grandfather was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. So he had me go really far with it, Um And like at one point I went into Crown Heights and got prayer shawls from rabbis there. I had a whole costume. I had a whole ritual. And and then the whole thing of performing it, we didn't perform. We, you know, we did it. An action that he worked with was about, I think his interest was in the action. You were the doer of the action, the witness of the action, and the action. And to try to find that integrity, Mm. right? So he only brought audience in at the end for one showing. And it really was almost a test for us to see how we could stay with ourselves. 
how we could stay with the details of the structure we had built and the life that we got led into. So in that sense, it was kind of the most profound acting work I've ever done. Wow. Because it really was about, I mean, it goes back to ritual, right? Yeah. You are perform you're and I really appreciate it because I feel like this time that we're living in now, we live in a selfie culture, we live in a age of narcissism, we live in an age where you know, it's all image. We're we're bombarded by image and everybody feels it and I'm on Instagram and Facebook and I do all that stuff too. So I you know, and I get lost in it too. Yeah. Um but why I love why I love working with Daniel Talbot and Rising Phoenix is because I really do feel that he goes back to action and a source of why are we doing this? If we're not doing it for an act, a ritual act, not that he uses the word ritual, but you know, when we're acting with one another, he's like, you know, don't be just acting in yourselves, guys. Go after each other. And this is for, you're doing a, there is action involved at all times. He makes it really alive. And I, what I love working with him as an actor is he can read my bullshit like five miles away <laughs> and also get me out of it, right? He gives me great direction. And they're always tangible, actable, and I think also as a dramaturg for a writer, he's fantastic that way about like sensing what needs to be on that page in relationship to vitality and action Um, and what doesn't. And, you know, like kind of veering away from a kind of intellectuality, even though he's very intellectual, well-read, the whole thing, but that theater is not that and that sometimes we get lost in that in our culture now, you know, like it gets very sophisticated. Right, And right. it gets very, you know, about careerism or it gets very, you know, and I think that those values both, you know, why I like working with those guys so much. And they do this thing called Chino Nights, mm. which is awesome, which is like a pop-up theater where all these playwrights and actors get together for a week and they perform in a bookstore or they perform in the back of a bar. And it's really like rock'em, sock'em robot theater, right? You're going to put this play up and everybody freaks out. And, it's like, <laughs> oh, no. and then you put this thing up and it's like this vital piece of, you know, theater. And, and now they're also like, and a lot of those plays actually have gone on to development and production in, in other theaters oh. that started there. One thing that really struck me about... What you were saying, I mean, when I think about your performance in the convent, I actually think that was one of the first times I saw you, I've seen you on stage. You've been my teacher. You were my teacher like yeah. 10 years ago. But um, I was like, so it was so visceral and physical. And you you're, you were like, uh, I could feel the energy coming out of you and through you and moving through you. It was so amazing. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one thing that strikes me when you speak about... Um, your work with Grotowski and um, mm. that early stuff. I feel like experimental theater has this. There, there are two things about it. One thing is like it's kind of about endurance in some way, about long stretches of time doing the same thing, so that your body 
undergo some kind of experience. Mm. And then there's also something about experimental theater that feels like, oh, it's hard to recreate. Or like mm-hmm. you have this one amazing experience and then uh, is it applicable? How do we apply it to our processes in a commercial way or in a way that like, I mean, it's obviously, you know, you do that, you did that in the play. and But did you ever feel like you, did you have to navigate that at all as you were coming up or developing your own approach to roles and things like that? Yes, I know what you're saying. There's there's one part of experimental theater that's I I would call it for lack of a better word one part. Um, well, there's a big part that's training, right? Mm. But you're talking about when you get to text, right? Mm-hmm. And and kind of how do you work on a role with the principles of let's say Grotowski's work or the principles of more kind of physical embodied theater work. Right? Yeah. So a lot of the body has impulses. There are impulses that come up and you follow those impulses. And another person who helped me a lot was a woman named Carol Fox Prescott who does something called breath work. And it's very in line with physical work. And once I said to her, I said, I can read bodies, Carol, but I can't read breath like you read breath. And she said to me, Wendy, the body is the breath. There's no difference. Like if you're seeing something in the body, Mm. it's also in the breath and it's that connected, right? Mm. Like if you're holding your breath, your body's held too. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. How do you integrate the two things? I think, you know, I do think one thing that experimental theater and all these exercises like the cat and all of these things give us is there's incredible detail to it and precision. So you're really developing a physical score through the work and through rehearsal process. So you start with just like impulses, physical impulses, and you start... I I do a lot of work on the script too. Mm. A lot of... I do script analysis, and I think that's where I fall... You know, like, it's always been that way for me. I've been at Circle in the Square for two years, ETW for two years. I believe in both, and I believe that... I actually don't believe that there's one training... For one, I think, I think as an actor, you grow up and you develop all these eclectic tools, and you put them in your box, and it doesn't matter. It's like John Lennon; whatever gets you through the night is all right. Like, you know, I steal from like Stella Adler, I steal from Strasberg, I steal from all over. I'm like, whatever works, I'll take it. Um, But I do think the script analysis work is a key part, and I think that the physical training part is a key part, and I. It all came together for me in a way in Carol's class, but I don't think it was just her work. It was like the amount of training that I had done already. I got to her when I was like in my late 20s, 30. So the amount had accumulated to the point where the body, I started to trust the body and wasn't relying so much on the intellect and all of a sudden the intellect and the body merged and integrated so that my physical impulses were coming from all of the readings and stuff that I had done and imbibing myself in the script, right? And I do believe a lot in action, like, you know, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I take from Meisner in that way. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
But I think what you're asking, to go back to your question, the experimental theater work, I feel, was the first work, and I do think this, Grotowski started it. I mean, if you look at Stanislavski, you're dealing more with textual work, right? And the exercises of Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg and all of that, like emotional memory and active imagination and all of that. But with Grotowski, he brought in the body, like in such a profound way, and that the body contains memory. The body contains, and I believe the body contains collective unconscious memory, right? Primal memory. And why we work with the spine is you're activating the energies, primal energies. You're getting the lower body involved, which if you're playing Medea and you're going to kill somebody, you better activate that uh, that energetic, right? Yeah. And so if you're not existing in your lower body as a human actor, right, something is not integrated. And I, I do feel that, and one thing Grotowski said, he said the impulses come from the groin, mm. which then they travel up the spine. So if you're not in your groin... And that is our creative center as humans. It's where we have sex. That's where we procreate, we create. And all that energetic is so repressed in our culture, right? Yeah. So to involve that and not to be so repressed puritanicals that we are right now with the right wing and like all that stuff that's going on is so historically in our culture, mm. right? There's always been this kind of like thing as actors, we are asked to unleash all of that on stage. Some people release it off stage too, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, it bleeds out. Um, but, um, you know, there's a vitality in it. And I think that that's our, our place as actors is as healers. If you go back to shamans, right? What is, it's not narcissism. It's actually like maybe somebody's coming to the theater tonight that has lived through this and I am going through this for them, right? I am, they're not able to feel this, but I'm going to feel this for them. I'm going to go to those edges, those limits. And that it, it, it is a generous act that, um, you know, the ego's involved always, 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 always. But you know what I mean? Like, I do believe the actors that I admire the most um, are coming from some really instinctual place. And it is body. Like, I saw Adam Driver last night in Burn This. Mm-hmm. He's, he's like an animal. He's like, you know, it's all instinct. And he's got intellect as well feeding those instincts right that's so interesting it's really interesting actually to bring up adam driver because as i was listening i was thinking you know how you're also a teacher and so you see a lot of young actors Mm -hmm. and we exist in a very different world today than we did in you know when you were younger when you were growing up in the 70s i feel like we are so distracted there is our head spaces are so full and we're Mm -hmm. constantly consuming how how has that affected young actors you see as instruments? And also, you know, what do you try to impart on them? 
So I think there was this great, there's this great Saturday Night Live skit when the iPhones first came out. So this is a long time ago, but like somebody had an iPhone that was like the size of a teeny nano, like an iPod nano, and they were like this. And if people existed, you know, without their lower bodies before, I think the danger of this time is that we're existing from the neck up. Mm. Our bodies are in chairs all day long. Our bodies are at computers. I, I'm at it. I feel it. Like my body is actually not good because I'm sitting so much at a computer, mm. right? So what I'm seeing in younger actors now is kind of a more of a disconnect of the whole body and kind of this image thing, right? What technology has brought into our lives is kind of living in this kind of imagistic world and are you breathing? <laughs> are you, you know, without the breath and the body, you're not really present and feeling and sensing. So a lot of the, I actually think the Grotowski work right now is so valuable for people. I mean, not even, not just actors, but for people to humans. get, yeah, humans to get into their body. And you have to struggle in the work because it's demanding, but it brings you up against an edge. You know, it, it gets you into your animal. Um, and it is designed for that. It gets you into your, you know, even the movements, you know, they're not linear, they're kind of spiral. So you're not able to think in a linear way anymore and that breaks your intellect in half and you're into more an imagistic world after that, right? So right now I think this training is fantastic for actors and what I am seeing with younger actors in a way, I I feel there's the minute that they get into and taste that, they're there. It's like it's like a it's they're hungry for it. Hmm. And I think that there, what I what I do notice more in classes actually is more, um, and I think in the generations coming up, you know, like my daughter is eighteen. There's a lot more social anxiety. There's a lot more depression. There's a lot more um, disconnection. You know, all, everything everybody's talking about, like we're so connected and we're not. Yeah. Like, and I think that that's why the theater is so vital now. Like, it could be an old dinosaur that's about to be thrown out, but, like, it's one of the only places that we're in a room together as humans breathing and living through something together where I'm not on my computer or in a movie or, you know, like I'm really having to exist in another way. So. I wish as a culture that... I mean, you're so... It is so vital, and I feel like, is there... But... Institutionally, there's no support for the theater anymore, and people are so, are just so much more, you know, ready to go see a movie or stay home and watch Netflix. And yeah, I know. But you know, like I asked Kate Vock from the Worcester Group once. I said, I said, what do you think you need to create theater? And she goes, a bunch of people you like in a room, a bunch of people you like to work with in a room. You know, and yes, there are financial constraints, of course. But I will say I think the financial stuff can also get in the way of good theater. Like I think that things get overproduced and that creativity comes from limitations. And some of the best work I've seen 
comes from like you need to get it out there, like the machine to get it out in the world, right? That I think is finance. But to create the work, I don't know about that. I th- I've actually seen where money can actually um, damage work, where it's like overproduced, it's too early to come out. Um, you know, I saw, I'm a big follower of Noche Flamenca with Soledad Barrio, who's like been written up in the Times as like one of the greatest dancers of our time. And they have chairs on stage and musicians. And that is, I, I go to very deep places with that work, like beyond. And, you know, I've been in like Broadway houses with totally overproduced or even off-Broadway houses with really produced work, which is beautiful, right? But I don't feel the core of the work inside of it. I don't feel, and, you know, I think it's it's a reflection. One thing Daniel always says, which I actually really agree with, is that everything that goes into work goes on uh, into the work. Go, everything surrounding it, the way it's produced, everything gets up on stage. So you, it's like a mirror, right? And it's a mirror for our society too, for theater. But you, the stage doesn't lie. It never lies. So you can see everything. Um, and so every little iota of it goes up on stage. So interesting in terms of producing, right? Because I produce too. You know, what are you, what's your integrity in terms of producing? And making decisions about, you know, where do you keep the work in the foreground? And, you know, sometimes I've overproduced things and I feel terrible about it. Really? Yeah. I, f- I feel like sometimes the the plays haven't been ready to go up, um, would have been better served by a reading, would have been better served by workshop without too much. You know, like you can, you know, you can take the thing out of the oven too soon and it's harmful. Where did the producing impulse come out of? Did you just one day say... I, um, producing for me, I, in 1999, I started a not-for-profit called Piece by Piece Productions. And part of it had to do with my, um, you know, I in- inherited wealth. So I, and I love theater and I was working and stuff. And I was like seeing all these artists who weren't working. And I was like, ah, I'm dying. Like, this doesn't feel good. So I created this not-for-profit for to support artists in their work, to support artists mostly in their work. Um, I, I felt it was really needed. I felt like it, our culture, our society does not support the arts in mm-hmm. a way that is really, um, people are having to work three jobs. You know, like, it, I don't know how artists find the time to do their work. Some people do and they're able to manage it. And then other people I feel like can really be helped by financial support in that way. Um, so I started uh, producing an organization called Piece by Piece Productions. And so that work is primarily for artists to do their work. And um, it's about producing other people's work. And then Weather Vane was started because it's a not-for-profit, so I can't work. And all of a sudden I started to see all these people working, and I was like, 
I want to work too. <laughs> so I created Weathervane as an entity that I could then also create my own projects with and work from there. Um, it is, you know, you could say it's there is wealth involved, right? So that's I, I'm not talking to people who are out raising money and stuff. I'm actually like there are grants that are coming in and all of that, but I feel I guess I feel like it's a great question right now in our society about wealth and privilege and how do you use your privilege and you know I, my daughter when she was little I gave her like three little boxes and I said one is for spending one is for giving and one is for saving and do all of them you know what I mean it's not that complicated mm-hmm. not that complicated and I do a lot of other giving that's not theater in terms of social justice and things of that kind but I I definitely feel like I couldn't some people make a decision that they need to keep that thing separate like they just give their giving to social justice or things of that nature but I feel like um, I couldn't sit by and see all these artists you know like it, it, I couldn't do it mm. so I felt like I needed to support the arts in a big way and I don't feel I don't feel that our country I think that it is a responsibility of people who have wealth to support the arts or whatever they care about you have to give back it's a t- and in this time especially like it's you know we're it's really crazy what's going on now politically yeah we are in a very very interesting time right now yeah and I mean, we can't really see where we are right now. It feels like it could be a turning point, but who knows? We can keep going this way probably for a little while longer as well. Yeah. And yeah, see where we end up. When you look back over the last, you know, since you went to NYU or since even since the, your 10-year-old self, when you look back, um, do, you, how, do, you feel, do you have any regrets or do you feel... Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, regrets. Um, Wow, regrets. Um, I regret certain jobs that I turned down. I I don't think I have regrets. I think I struggle with putting myself out as an actor. You know, like I feel like I don't have a lot of... I think I struggle with my insecurity in relationship to my work and that has held me back um and i i regret that and i'm working on that you know but i i'm really grateful for i i mean i'm so i i feel more grateful than i feel regretful let's put it that way <laughs> and i really am i feel like you know i had some of the best teachers I'm one of those people, like some people had a slew of bad teachers and then they form their own thing. Fuck you. Oh, can I swear on that? Yeah. <laughs> so fuck you, you know, like I'll do my own thing. Blah. And then I'm one of those people who had like, I I am like so blessed with teachers. Like, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to teach. Um, Because, whoa, like when you get a, a teacher that, I mean, I wouldn't be who I am without my teachers. My, not as a human either. Like, I feel some of my mental health 
was due to my teachers that I had and the values that they imparted on me and the technology that they put into my body. You know, like I, I would not be, I wouldn't be walking without some of those teachers. Mm. You know, so I don't, regrets... I mean, there was some one time when I was, Grotowski asked me to join uh, his group after nine months. And I was crazy then. I drove a motorcycle cross country and I got into an accident. And I was like, I didn't know who I was in my 20s. I kind of had a freak out, nervous breakdown. And um, I, I often think like, what would have happened if I had taken that, taken that path? But it, it's a very monastic path. And I, you know, with my set of circumstances in my life, the way they are, I think this path actually is my path. Like I, I have, I, I wouldn't have been able to do that with all that I've been given. I think, you know, the giving back part I, it was, is, is essential for me hmm. um, to be able to stand on my two feet. Well, thank you. I'm very grateful for you. And thank you for coming in. Thank you, Rachel. It was awesome. Thank you.